Okay, so today we're going to be out of Schwarzenbach 45 through 49. This is chapter 3, Anthropogenic Organic Chemicals. So we intentionally make things resistant to degradation. On purpose, we split things out from the natural cycle to make these immortal chemicals, or at least chemicals that have no corresponding metabolism or degradation principle other than physical weathering in the environment. Or worse, their metabolism or their degradation creates byproducts that are just as toxic or more toxic as the parent material. And then we're very surprised when the chemical does exactly what it's supposed to do. It follows all of the natural laws. And then we find out that without the constraints that we intentionally pulled off the molecule, then these chemicals hurt us and the environment. So the authors did a very good job of not being sarcastic as they were describing some of these, which I appreciate, but you can almost hear a little thread of like, duh, which I found amusing. So we're going to be going over crops, pesticides, um, PFAS, flame retardants, herbicides, pesticides, PAHs, and just kind of a general review of some of our critical needs for anthropogenic chemicals. So we'll start with persistent organic pollutants. These are a diverse eclectic a family of chemicals that are characterized by their fate or transport, not necessarily their structural makeup. So these chemicals persist in the environment. They have no abiotic or biotic transformation results. It results in the removal <clears throat> of the chemical into any media. The long-range transport is in play. So these chemicals will move great distances. They are global, even to the tops of mountains and the bottoms of the sea. They bioaccumulate in the food web, and they are toxic to living things. They tend to be low volatility, significant hydrophobicity, and will persist, and usually favor air or water transport. So pesticides and PCBs, but these are some of our legacy pops. So there are nine chlorinated pesticides, hexachlorobenzene, HCB, DDT, aldrin, chlordane, PCBs, poly polychlorinated biphenyls, polychlorinated dibenzodioxines, or PCDDs, and dibenzofurans, or PCDFs. And again, they're not single compounds, but they can be isomers, cogens, cogeners, related by origin, structure, or function. So um, there are some really great pictures of these molecules, and they're all these kind of flexi rings. So when it says that they're not single compounds, but can be isomers, um, it's very clear that these rings can interact with each other, bend, flip, do all of the transformations that we would expect an organic to do. So anything new that is produced in high enough quantities can also get added to this pop list. So for example, alpha, beta, gamma, hexachlorocyclohexane, pentachlorobenzene, hexabromobiphenol, and other polyhalogenated or polybrominated or polyfluorinated compounds including PFAS, which we'll talk about, and our old friends, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So even though we've created things like the Stockholm Convention to reduce use in production, we keep finding these things in places that they shouldn't be, for example, Arctic regions or the tops of mountains. And there's no sign of reduction. If anything, the transport levels are increasing, carrying more POPs to further and more remote locations around the globe. So a case study or application of this is with petroleum hydrocarbons. So remember we talked about PAHs as a pop. So petroleum hydrocarbons are extremely common, obviously. 
They're a very diverse class of materials. For example, we have methane, which is at 16 kilograms per mole, and then we have beta carotene at 537 grams per mole. So you can see the size, the natural versus man-made, um, these are highly diverse chemicals. But they all have diverse branching, olefinic, cyclic, and aromatic hydrocarbons embedded in the structure. So fossil fuel generated or byproducts of fossil fuel generation is where we know them officially. But you have things like beta carotene, which is um, the color orange in carrots. So they can be natural too. Some can vaporize, others bind to soil, some are unreactive, some are, some are biodegradable, some can interact with light, some are non-toxic, and some are carcinogens. And the two that we're most interested in are going to be BTEX and PAH. So what is BTEX? BTEX is benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and three xylene isomers. These are all gasoline constituents. So it's a very common soil groundwater pollutant, and it results from spillage of liquid fuels and oils associated with NAPL, or non-aqueous phase liquid, which spreads in the soil and dissolves according to solubility. BTEX is highly soluble, and it likes to move. So this will all result in many remediation projects. So we have a lot of nice examples of BTEX and PAH, and you'll see a lot of um, folded fan shapes. You'll see a lot of stereoisomers, you'll see a lot of linear chains, and then our usual fatty acid types. So that's a branching chain with um, a benzene ring on either end. So benzene has some derivatives. We've got benzene, we've got toluene, ethylbenzene, OMP xylene, and remember OMP refers to ortho, meta, and per static location. So that's where the functional group changes uh, its location on the, the um, binding side of the ring. We have styrene, which is our usual explosive favorite. So remember, styrene creates a chain reaction with itself, and it is a runaway reaction. So that's a good one. We've got our friends, the biphenyls. Indine, we've got a tetrahydronaphthalene or a tetralin, naphthalene, anthracene, phenethracene, pyrene, benzoapyrene, and perylene. And these are all just basically stacks of benzene rings in different forms. So we get these from combustion. It's the application of asphalts, coal tar, creosotes as wood preservatives. It can also be part of barbecue cooking. Gross. Um, and several of these are potent carcinogens. For example, benzoapyrene. They are common air pollutants, and they have a tendency to bioaccumulate. So oil weathers differently depending on its volatility, time, availability of reactive media, light. There's a lot of stuff in it that can move easily in air or water and encourage reactions, for example, soil absorption. So whatever's left gets put into something called the unresolved complex matrix, or UCM, and it's the hump in a gas chromatograph analysis. So when we pop it in the gas chromatograph, we end up with this curve. Um, and that curve will change qualitatively based on time and content and volatility and what it was exposed to, right? But this is, the UCM doesn't capture the polar compounds that may be formed in weathering process. It only captures the nonpolar, the oil part. 
And weathering can include biological, abiotic, and photochemical reactions. So light can even change the weathering process. There's a lot of stuff happening in oil. So moving on to organic solvents, the sisters of oils. This is something, an organic solvent is something that can dissolve another chemical without changing it. And remember, organic just refers to the use of OSP and um, carbon chains. So solvents are produced in millions of metric tons. They're extremely common. Their usual properties center around user-driven needs, for example, changing viscosity, volatility, surface wetting, thermal and chemical stability of something else. A VOC is a volatile organic compound. It has a high vapor pressure, evaporates e easily under ambient conditions. It's got lots of health effects and organ damage potential. It's got a creation of ground level ozone. So this is where we get our smog. Common VOCs include BTEX, our old friend, tertiary dialkyl ethers, methyl and ethyl T-butyl ether, so this is MTBE and ETBE, methyl T-amyl ether, or TAME, polychlorinated C1-C2 hydrocarbons, and our emerging pollutant of volatile methyl siloxanes, or VMS. And VMS is very interesting, so we're going to talk about that later. But those guys have a long-range transport in the atmosphere, not necessarily in water, but in air. So BTEX, again, mostly from gasoline, can also be used for a solvent and a starting synthesis base or cleaning agent, except for benzene, because remember, benzene is just too toxic. So buckets of this stuff are emitted annually, 22,000 metric tons of direct emission in the U.S. in 2011 alone. So we're going to see a lot of this. Polychlorinated C1 and C2 hydrocarbons, these are legacy groundwater pollutants. They're very, very common. DT, carbon tetrachloride, 1,1-trichloroethane, or TCA, trichloroethene, TCE, and tetrachloroethene, or perchloroethene, or PCE. These are all really good examples of some of our legacy choices, right? So these were typical in dry cleaning or metal degreasing, and they have a stratospheric ozone depletion effect. Yay! Other common solvents include trichloromethane, chloroform, CHCl3, and dichloromethane, methylene chloride, CH2Cl2. These are introduced by spills, leaks, or poor disposal practices, including illegal dumping. Liquid polychlorinated hydrocarbons are denser than water, so these make up our D-napples. These are dense, non-aqueous phase liquids, and it makes remediation extremely difficult. They sink to the bottom of the aquifer, they get into bedrock, and then they use the bedrock transport to move to other uh, water-bearing locations, which means that you can essentially have pop-up free D-napple remediation requirements, which sucks. And you won't know where they're from, right? Because they can move through the rocks. Under oxic conditions in water, they are highly mobile. This means that they're long lasting and they have a large area of contamination. In anoxic conditions, they can drop their halogen and turn even more toxic into their, their daughter byproducts. So these are things like vinyl chloride. So this is CH2 double bond CHCl, and this is a reductive dechlorination of TCE or TCA. And it is nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. So um, our carbon, these are our dry cleaning chemicals, right? Carbon tetrachloride, 111 trichloroethane, trichloroethene, 
um, TCE and tetrachloroethene, perchlorothene, TCE. So these things are all very simple. I say simple, but they tend to be just chains and they have a couple isomers. They may have a double bond, but they're very, very simple and they're polar, so water soluble. Volatile methylsiloxanes or VMS. <clears throat> so these are interesting. These are a wide array of linear and cyclic oligomeric structures. They are primarily found in personal care products, industrial solvents, lotions, body wash, cosmetic, deodorant, and cleaning products. They have a very low surface tension, very low viscosity, high thermal stability, hydrophobicity, high-ish volatility. They have a low van der Waal force interaction per size than other similar chemicals, which is interesting. So they don't tend to absorb very well. Cyclic VMS are more common than linear in personal care products, and lots of these make it into the atmosphere here. So for example, one of the most common is something called D5, and this is about 30,000 metric tons per year are admitted into the atmosphere. So something called polydimethylsiloxane is the most commonly used VMS. It is very common in dry cleaning as well. And these are interesting because they're silica-based. So we have a silicon oxide or a siloxane, which can be repeated over and over again in a linear polydimethylsiloxane, where N is 2 to 12 times repeated. And then you have these really interesting four carbon chains, uh, four carbon rectangles, rings, there we go, four carbon rings. Um, that look really, really weird. Um, I'm not doing a good job talking about this, but it essentially is a rectangle ring with a siloxane stuck in the middle, uh, which just looks incredibly unnatural. Um, and then you have these interesting decamethylcyclopentasiloxanes. So that is a, a decahedron basically made up of siloxanes with these strange hydrogen chains kind of budding off of it. So symmetrical, but it looks very reactive and it looks very pretty. Um, but you can see why they're so volatile, right? The four carbon chain is not terribly solid. The linear polydimethyl really wants to bond with just about everything. And then you've got the decamethylcyclopentane pentasiloxane, which just has all of these extra hydrogens just begging to go polar. So VMS reactions uh, tend to favor a hydroxyl radical in the atmosphere, and it favors long-range transport through, the, through air. They are hydrophobic and persistent in H2O, and bioaccumulation is a concern. And remember, these are for personal care products. So existing toxicological info shows that concentrations in the environment are well within tolerance. However, we are producing a lot for no new, real reason, and they are accumulating very quickly. And they don't talk much about degradation or transformation products, so there is a possibility that the byproducts are just going to be as concerning as the actual parent material per norm. So that's an emerging contaminant that I'm sure we'll be able to see. So flame retardants. These are literally in everything. They're from furniture, electronics, devices, toys, plastics, coatings, foams. They are just everywhere. They're a hugely important family of polymer additives. We make about 2 million metric tons per 
per year, maybe a third of those are organic. Um, an inorganic example is aluminum trihydroxide. An organic example, we'll talk about it, is usually a bromide, bromide or a phosphate combo. The organic flame retardants tend to be polychlorinated, polybrominated, aliphatic, or aromatic compounds. It is a phosphate ester, tris-2-chloroethyl phosphate, and halogen-free phosphorus flame retardants. Those are our organic choices. So the polyhalogenated compounds um, tend to create halogenated radicals. So we bust the bond between the bromine, 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 there we go. We bust the bond on the bromine, and then it becomes this radical that then traps other radicals and creates a chain reaction that essentially starves the fire. So it interrupts the gas phase and it interrupts the transfer of energy uh, that would cause combustion and instead just wraps all these radicals in this um, char layer. Brominated compounds are more effective than chlorinated because the carbon-bromine bond is more breakable than carbon-chlorine, and they are usually additives, so they tend to sneak out into the environment easily and are structurally very similar to a lot of pops. <clears throat> Burning, dismantling, recycling, electronics, all are highly contaminated with this material, and they are very bad for you, so don't breathe it. They generate brominated, chlorinated dioxines and furans, PBDEs, similar to PCBs and PBBs. The new substitutes have similar problems, right? So these are brominated benzenes, decabromodiphenyl ethane, DBDPE. They're brominated benzoic acid, brominated phthalic acid esters, and tribromophenoxy compounds. But what did you hear in there, right? Benzene and bromine. So when you light benzene and bromine on fire, you're going to have similar problems, right? These are toxic, they bioaccumulate, and they're highly persistent. Flame retardants are usually applied in combinations, so they can be plasticizers, the phthalates, bis-2-ethylhexyl, tetrabromophthalate, good examples, chlorinated paraffins, or triphenylphosphate. Sometimes retardants are covalently bonded to polymer materials to prevent the loss to the environment. Their functional groups must react with the polymer base for this to work. So an example of this is tetrabromobisphenol A, TBBPA, which is the most widely used brominated flame retardant. Environmental release is probable, however, because it's very similar to bisphenol A. So it can transform in the environment to an endocrine disruptor. And it works in a lot of different organisms. It's very common. These are really interesting uh, bent rings. And they look kind of like folded sheets with a whole bunch of chlorines tacked on them. Dechlorine plus, this is an example. It's got two isomers, syn and anti. So uh, we've got tris-2-chloroethyl phosphate, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, which are the most widely used cogener mix. Um, we've got some benzene rings. We've got some bisphenol. Um, but yeah, endocrine disruptors. PFCs, or polyfluorinated compounds, these are waterproofing, stain resistant, Teflon. They're very high electronegativity because fluorine, which makes the van der Waals forces with H2O exceptionally small, this is how it works as a water repellent. The low weight PFCs are usually between 4 and 14 carbons. They're major environmental pollutants. They are stable 
and they have surfactant pro properties, excuse me. They can be both neutral and charged. So neutrals tend to be fluorotelomer alcohols or FTOHs, and those telomeres are small polymers with only two to five monomers. So this is the first time that I've actually paid attention to this, but fluorotelomere alcohols are, this, are similar in components to deoxyribonucleic acids, right? They're telomeres. And this is also how cells generate um, their micelles, which is how we get cell division and, and basic cell function. At the end. The monomers are the beginning parts to that, obviously, right? When we talk about stage one and stage two, well, stage one of the cell lining up, I'm not sure which stage it is. It might be stage two. Um, but anyway, when a cell, the telomeres line up around the, uh, the anchor point and then begin to orient themselves in opposite directions and split the micelle. So that's um, a similar I think that's a similar principle to what we're talking about here with the fluorotelomere alcohols, just not the splitting part, just the formation part. So these are perfluorosulfanamides, perfluorosulfamides, and they include perfluorooctaline-sulfonate anamide PFOSA. Common anions in water, so this is where our PFOA, PFOS, and PFSAs come. These acids may be formed from FTOHs in the atmosphere or in metabolic transformations. So even if you don't start off with a perfluorooctosulfamide, you may get it because it goes through your body or it goes through the ground or it goes through another metabolic system that changes its form. These are linear carbon chains, but there are many, many options. So there are 89 branch chain isomers for PFOS alone and we have a whole bunch of acids. They strongly associate to proteins because of their charge nature and surfactant properties, and that's why they accumulate in human blood and liver and kidney. They are typical in home furnishings and carpets. Wonderful. They are considered toxic and uh, persistent chemicals. The charged ones tend to absorb more, so they're more easily removable and they're more stable in situ. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thought, right? Is there a way that we can change a neutral isomer into a charged isomer and then catch it in an ion exchange or something? So these, are, these look very, very simple. So they are just basically branch chains. They're very, very large, but they are just basically branch chains. Complexing agents, surfactants, and whitening agents. So we are talking about detergents and soaps, and this has a heavy wastewater impact. So these are complexing precipitate metal ions that can interrupt uh, regular wastewater treatment precipitation. They're surfactants or tensides, and so they keep insoluble things aqueous through the use of micelles. Remember, we we're just talking about that. Uh, they are typically phosphates or phosphonate-based. Um, they can be replaced by zeolites or other organic complexing agents like NTA or EDTA. NTA may be eliminated using traditional treatment techniques, but EDTA is persistent and it is a pollutant. Now, it will be interesting because EDTA is also a very common application for metal remediation in industrial um, sites, 
So I'm interested in the idea that EDTA itself is a persistent pollutant that is also used to complex metals in industrial situs. Hmm. Very interesting. So both of these are very common contaminants in surface waters, and both NTA and EDTA, EDTA can mobilize heavy metals in wastewater treatment plants. So you can pull them out of solution, complex them, and then ruin the treatment system or kill the bio. Surfactants are hydrophobic and, and hydrophilic. This is called amph amphiphilic character. PFAS, PFOS is a good example. So an interesting example is four nonylphenol polyethylene glycol ethers, ethers, which are partially biodegradable in wastewater treatment plants and transform into potent endocrine disrupting products called four nonylphenol. Whitening agents, these are also interesting. These are still bean compounds. So some examples of a still bean are 4,4-bis-2-sulfostryl biphenyl, DSBP, 4,4-bis-4-anilino-6-morphilino-135-triazine, 2-yilt, amino-stilbene-2-2-disulfonate, or DAS1. This is also interesting because whitening agents can absorb UV light and can change um, can actually change form just with light contact. Oh, and we're gonna talk about that. Fluorescent compounds, these are whitening agents, which can be seen as fluorescent compounds, are absorbing in the UV spectrum. They also adsorb to textile surfaces very easily. They're very water soluble and resistant to degradation and often used as dye tracers. They have a human estrogen receptor interference, as in they look basically like the human estrogen hormone and they can take its place competitively. Corrosion inhibitors. These are dishwashing, anti-icing fluids, cooling liquids, brake fluid, fracking additives. An example of this would be 1-H-benzotriazole and 4 and 5-methyl-1-H-triazoles. These are widely detected, quite persistent, potentially toxic, and emerging pollutants. So we're probably going to see quite a bit about corrosion inhibitors. Pharmaceuticals. So traditional wastewater treatment plants can't actually remove pharmaceuticals. They can use something called advanced oxidation, but it may not be effective depending on the chemical of concern or the sheer diversity of chemicals, right? We've got all kinds of stuff going through our bodies and, uh, and it's just getting more and more diverse. So there is a, also significant agricultural influence. So our veterinary surfaces are also adding antibacterials and antifungals and um, that runoff, all of it is going into our water system and we do not have treatment capabilities or even understanding for a significant number of these chemicals. So we're primarily focused on endocrine disruptors for pharmaceutical influence because it imitates the natural hormone in an organism that's needed for homeostasis, reproduction, development, or behavior. Um, and it competitively excludes that hormone. So instead of getting the hormone that you actually need, you would get this endocrine disruptor, which is just alike enough to bond to the enzyme or to the, the receiver in your cell, but not enough to actually do the thing. So mood disorders and behavioral problems and infertility and all kinds of stuff is on the table here. So usually these materials are more polar they have functional groups capable of hydrogen bonding, including an acid-base functionality. So that makes it really easy for them to bond with stuff in our body, right? Because that's how 
That's how we maintain homeostasis. So some detergent examples, we've got a nitrolinoacetic acid, which is NTA, complexing agent, ethyl diamine tetraacetic acid, EDTA, complexing agent. Uh, we've got our phenols, which just look like a fatty acid. We've got our alkyl benzene sulfonates, which has an R group attached to a benzene and a sulfonate. Very simple. Sodium stearate, which is just soap. That one's nice and simple as well. Um, so most of these are basically just branched end chains or branched carbon chains. The only one that's different is the whitening agent, which is a bunch of um, benzene rings tied together with some sulfur bridges. And that's the 4,4-bis-2-sulfosterol-biphenyl, which is DSBB. Um, so just a reminder for endocrine disruptors, most of our hormones are fatty, right? So they're nonpolar. And you can see that with the estrone natural hormone, which is a series of rings. So one, a benzene ring with um, two hexane rings, a pentane ring, and then some oxygens and OHs on the end. And the OH makes it um, slightly polar. Slightly. But primarily nonpolar. Oh, the one thing I wanted to pull out is the most common or potent are the natu natural estrogenics. Um, and one of the examples for that is 17 beta estradiol. These are big, weird looking molecules. Um, so, a really good example is an antibiotic, antibiotic which is called clarithromycin. Uh, and it is just a series of bent rings that it just looks reactive, right? So you've got oxygens everywhere. You've got hydrogens hanging out, waiting to bond with something. You've got OHs just waiting to bond with something. So these are very large, very reactive molecules that just happen to fit into hormone uh, acceptors or receptors. So I thought that was interesting. Pesticides. So by, for year-to-year -year use, we've put about 2.5 million metric tons of this material into the environment. So 40% of that is just in herbicides, and then um, the rest is distributed among insecticides and finally fungicides. Our concerns with pesticides are their volatility and the mechanism of transport. So they are designed for immediate degradation. However, we're finding that they can actually migrate, and we're finding that the degradation byproducts are just as problematic as some of the parent material. So there's some concerns with that. Our fumigants, they tend to be halogenated, simple carbon chains like normal. Our herbicides tend to be benzene rings with um, our usual oxygen chlorination um, stuck on the ends. The only interesting one is atrazine, which has a whole bunch of nitrogen instead. So it's got the amides. Methyl bromide is the most common fumigant. It has a tendency to displace stratospheric um, ozone. So great. So our most common fumigant is directly contributing to the degradation of stratospheric ozone. Yay, choices. For herbicides, we have phenoxyalkanoic acids. These are our 2,4-D esters and salts. We have chloroacetanolinides. 
metachlor, triazines, atrazine, bipyridols, which is diquat, urea derivatives like isoproteron. Common for stable transformations of the chemicals to persist in the environment at similar concentrations to the parent compound. So for example, desethanol atrazine is toxic. It persists as a metabolite of atrazine commonly found in surface waters, and it is uh, an estrogen stimulant, an estrogen baker, endocrine disruptor. <laughs> we'll just go with that. Um, but the reason it can do this is because most of these chemicals are chiral. They have enantiomers and optical isomers. So they can change direction, change shape, and be able to bond with their uh, estrogen counter receivers very easily in this case. But other ones have different hormones. So insecticides tend to be organophosphates. These are things like diazinon, disulfaton, carbamates like carbofuron, pyrothyroids, which are like cipermethrin. They can also be used as flame retardants. The only difference between an insecticide and a flame retardant is that organophosphates that have three identical alkyl or phenyl ester groups are non-toxic, whereas the insecticides replace their alkyl phenyl ester groups with a thionate, which is a P double bond es esters, which is instead of the oxinate, P double bond O ester. So the P double bond S or the thionate lowers mammalian toxicity. However, those can be converted or metabolized to P double bond O in target organisms. So we want to, the purpose of doing all this, just to sum up the chapter a little bit, is so that we can use specific environmental transport processes and chemical transformations to show the fate of chemical persistence and degradation based on structure. So we can see a chemical, we can predict what its issues are going to be, and then we can predict how it's going to be transported or what it's going to do once it gets in the environment. And then we can design a remediation program associated with it. So some review questions for the chapter. Uh, and again, I don't necessarily have to do this, and I didn't really check my work, so we can... We can talk about it. What characteristics render an organic compound to be qualified as a POP? What are so-called legacy POPs? And give some examples of these compounds. What other compounds exhibit typical POP characteristics? Persistent organic pollutants persist for a long time, transport over long distances, and are toxic to living things. Examples of legacy include PCBs, PCDDs, and HCBs. What is the composition of petroleum and what are its major, major components? What happens to petroleum after a spill? So petroleum is composed of PAHs, metals, fatty acids, and then some other stuff that we're going to talk about. There are set stages of weathering that can change its composition qualitatively over time. So spilled petroleum may look different depending on where it's spilled and how long ago or what the quantity that it has been exposed to light or another media actually is. What are the main sources of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in the environment, and why are pHs a problem? pHs come from gasoline, diesel combustion, creosote, wood preservation, asphalt, coal tar, lube oil, spills, general combustion, um, and refinery breaking. They are carcinogens and ubiquitous. They can also be extremely difficult to degrade. 
What are the main sources of BTEX compounds in the environment, and which is the most problematic among these compounds and why? So BTEX mostly comes from gasoline spills and some solvents. I put toluene as the most problematic because of its high toxicity, its volubility, and its persistence. Um, but benzene is probably the worst because it is super toxic. So BTEX may also be found in paints and some industrial processes. When considering organic solvents as groundwater pollutants, what are the main differences between polychlorinated C1 and C2 compounds and other solvents, including BTEX and dialkyl ethers such as MTBE? So MTBE and other solvents are transported faster and act as oxygenates. So they're water soluble uh, and they can essentially move with the materials. They are combustible, they like oxygen. C1-C2 hydrocarbons are non-flammable and they form D-napples, so that's dense non-aqueous liquids, non-aqueous phase liquids, and there are sinking sources. So those are super difficult to remediate because they will literally drop into the bedrock and then be transported to wherever the rocks go, right? Preferential pathways that can be miles and miles away from their initial contaminated source. Um, so it's extremely difficult to find where these sources actually are. And the degradation transformation products may actually be more toxic than the parent material under anoxic conditions. So that's like a carbon tetrachloride to vinyl chloride, for example, right? Then you pull it up out of the earth, then all of a sudden it's this nasty, toxic garbage. Which characteristics make volatile methyl siloxane special as compared to other organic solvents? For what purposes are VMS primarily used? VMS are highly volatile and they are air pollutants, not just water. So we emit a whole bucket load of these into the atmosphere year over year. And they're unique because they're extremely common. Like we put them in literally all of our personal care products. So we're rubbing this stuff on our skin. It seems fantastically dumb. Explain how organic flame retardants work. Why are polybrominated aromatic compounds well-suited as flame retardants? Why are many of these compounds considered to be a particular environmental concern? Organic flame retardants work by using the heat to activate halogenated radicals, so it breaks the bromine bond with that energy, and then those radicals capture other reactive radicals and starve the flame by interrupting the gas phase or the transfer of energy that would promote combustion. So the bromine bond is weaker than other comparable chemicals like chlorine, so that makes their radical capture much more effective. The halogens are structurally similar to a lot of carcinogens, pops, etc., and have many of the same issues, right? So they're also endocrine disruptors, they're carcinogens, they're the usual benzene problems. Sorry, POP problems. Eight. Uh, phthalates are ubiquitous pollutants in the environment. What are they primarily used for and why do they, like many of the flame retardants, escape in large quantities into the environment? So phthalates are additives that keep plastic in a malleable form and they can do other things. I think we have some colors, so dye tracers, fluorescence. We, we add them to things to make the things do what we want. Viscosity, surface tension, whatever. Um, and these are a problem because they also resemble human hormones, right? And they don't degrade in ways that are particularly helpful. So they can degrade into very toxic uh, endocrine disruptors, just the same as the parent material. And um, it also susceptibility for wildlife. So not only people, but also wildlife.
In which materials that you are exposed to every day would you expect the presence of low molecular weight polyfluorinated compounds or PFCs? So non-stick and waterproof items and electronics, so basically everything. <laughs> Um, so these would all have PFCs in them. Also, drinking water is pretty commonly contaminated with PFAS at this time, so great. And of course, from a work standpoint, we have our AFFF, so our non-aqueous, our aqueous firefighting foam um, that is hopefully not something that we're coming into contact daily, but we do have to be conscious. Give some examples of organic chemicals present in detergents that are used in households. Explain how their function, explain their function and comment on why some of them are environmental concern. How do these chemicals get into the environment? Um, so phosphates, right? So we have a whole mess of detergents here. We've got a whole mess of soaps and most of them have some sort of phosphate base and they're very common. They also have biphenyls and EDTA and some of these endocrine disruptors. Um, but the chemicals can interfere with wastewater treatment plant metal precipitation and their common pollutants to surface waters and phosphates, as we know, cause algal blooms and fish kills and um, acid base imbalances in, in surface waters and lakes. So these chemicals are chelators. They create micelles, all designed to protect dishes or prevent corrosion and retain nonpolar molecules in an aqueous state, and we discharge them regularly. So... Here you've got metals, here you've got nutrients flowing into surface waters, and it's very common to get um, surface water pollutants from that. What are the main routes by which pharmaceuticals are introduced into the environment, and which, which pharmaceuticals are of particular concern and why? Pharmaceuticals get into the water because we put them there. So humans consume large quantities, and we give animals large quantities that end up in agricultural runoff or wastewater systems. And since traditional wastewater treatment plants can't remove them, there's an accumulation of this material and degradation byproducts. So it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and we use more and more and more of them, and, and none of those are regulated, right, from a discharge standpoint. Um, or if they are, there's not much we can do about them. Some of these we can't even test for them, so great. <laughs> Life choices. Um, 12. Why is the environmental assessment of pesticides of particular importance, and what makes them different from other groups of anthropogenic compounds? So pesticides are intentionally applied to the environment in great numbers and are specifically designed to kill life. So the assessment of pesticides is particularly important because we are intentionally applying material designed to kill life to life. And there's not that much of a difference between an insect and us, or between a fungus and us. We're very, 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 very similar. So the assessment is important to realize which metabolic pathways we're actually trying to harness for that. And then also the byproducts are going to probably end up in us, right? So even if we design something that's short-term, it doesn't transport, it should degrade into something, the degradation byproducts are still metabolized by people and by animals and bioaccumulate and all that good stuff. So we do this on purpose, and then we just hope that they degrade quickly enough or they have a limited transport allowing them to not escape, and we assume that their degradation or metabolism over time will make them less toxic, and that's not always a great assumption. So next time we are going to be doing a review of thermodynamic functions. So we're going to be looking at chemical potentials, fugacities, pressure fugacities, 
um, excess free energy, enthalpy, and entropy, equilibrium partition coefficients, and Henry's law, and then some acid-base equilibriums because, because I suck at acid-base, and this is just what we have to deal with. So try that. I'll do a little bit tomorrow and see what I can finish. Um, good job. Take good.